0: anything else that's going on and with that you can open in your bibles to the book of deuteronomy chapter 20 and if you need a bible just lift up your hands and the ushers are waiting excited to bring a bible to you so you can follow along with us in our study takers on the bibles So it's been two weeks since we've been in the book of Deuteronomy. And as you recall, the book of Deuteronomy is a series of sermons given by Moses to the people of God during the last month or so of Moses' life. He's about to go to heaven, and the children of Israel are about to go into the promised land. And so, Moses, during these last days of his life, is seeking to remind the people of where they have been, to reinstruct them in the ways and the laws of God, and then to send them forward into where they're going. And so, these studies, these chapters, this book is just that. It's Moses' farewell address as he seeks to. Uh, instruct the people and prepare them for their destiny and what we have seen is that this book is filled with uh, interesting doctrine and concepts things to learn about God uh, civil governmental principles and precepts that would apply to the nation and also we find that there is much spiritual application that is beneficial to you and I as we seek to grow in our relationship with the God of the Bible, the God who inspired Moses to speak these words. So in chapter 20, we are in the middle portion, the middle area of Moses' second sermon. And this is by far the longest of all of them. Uh, as he's been in this since chapter 5, and he carries along with it until about chapter 28 or so. So this is the long-winded portion of Moses' uh, discourse and instructions to the people. And and as we come to chapter 20, Moses talks to them about the rules for warfare, or instructions concerning uh, the the war that they are about to face. And so chapter 20, verse 1, Moses the speaker, and he says to us this, he says, When thou goest out to battle against thine enemies, and seest horses and chariots, and a people more than thou, be not afraid of them, for the Lord thy God is with thee, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be, when you are come nigh unto the battle, that the priest shall approach and speak unto the people, And shall say unto them, Hear, O Israel, you approach this day unto battle against your enemies. Let not your hearts faint, fear not, and do not tremble, neither be ye terrified because of them. For the Lord your God is he that goeth with you, to fight for you against your enemies to save you. Now the people of God whether it be in Moses' day or in any generation and even in our own, the people of God are always going to have enemies just because we are the people of God. I was talking with a brother earlier this week who has a son who's in college. And in one of the college classes, the debate came up about the topic of same-sex marriage. And this brother, this son of a... You know, guy here in the church who's also a, a part of our church. He he spoke forth and, and he said, "I believe that it's wrong." And, and as soon as he said that, you know, the the classroom erupted, and 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 people you know go, "Well, why? Why do you think it's wrong?" And he said, "Because it's against my faith." And as soon as he said that, the classroom erupted even more. And then finally, one of the students looked over at him, and he said, What is your faith? And he said, I'm a Muslim. And there was a hush. (laughs) Everyone in the class, including the teacher, stopped immediately, and they said, Oh, that's cool. And that was the end of the debate. And then, of course, he stood up and he said, No, I'm not a Muslim. But do you see? He said, Do you see? What just happened there? If I had said I was a Christian, it would have gotten even louder in here. But because I said I was a Muslim, you all said, oh, oh, oh," you see. And here's the point. The point is this, that the people of God are always going to have enemies. And if for no other reason, because they are the people of God. Now, he's telling them that there's going to be people that are stronger than you that are going to be more well-equipped than you, that are going to be greater than you, that outnumber you, and that intimidate you. But he tells them that they're not to be afraid of their enemies because the Lord is with them. Now, to them, he's speaking as literally as it's possible to speak because they're about to go into a literal battle where they will face literal armies and they will be fighting a military conquest, you know. So, so for them, this is as literal as possible. But for you and I, we don't have a military enemy or someone who is rising up against us physically, necessarily. But you and I, we also have enemies, battles that we face. There is a New Testament application to the principles of warfare that we see here in Deuteronomy. First of all, every child of God battles with the daily Enemies of evil and darkness in the world. We battle with the things that come against us the temptations and the wickedness and the things that are seeking to pull us back, if you would, into the world or the thing that we came out of. And that's a constant battle. The Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians, chapter 6, Uh, verses 12 and 13 the apostle paul says this he says for we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities against powers against the rulers of the darkness of this world against spiritual wickedness in high places so he says that our enemies you and i individually are not even visible things they're things that are bigger stronger stronger behind the scenes of the things that we can actually see. Those are the enemies that we face. And so he tells us, verse 13 there, Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand. And so we are in a war, and we are facing a battle, and we have armor, and there's a fight that each one of us fights. But there's a second context with which the Christian, in New Testament terms, fights a spiritual battle. It's also in terms of the commission that was given to us by our Lord. The last thing that Jesus said prior to rising or ascending into heaven was to go forth into all nations and to make disciples, teaching them Whatsoever things I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And he said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And the secondary context of our battle as New Testament Christians is what we've been given to do in taking territory from the enemy. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy, who was a young pastor, uh, you know, one of the last things that Paul wrote, and he wrote to Timothy and he said this, chapter 2, verse 3. He says, you therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. And so in the context of what we've been called to do as Christian is re- in reaching out to those that are lost, it is in the context of this battle. Paul spoke of his own ministry and his own call that God had placed upon his life later on in the same epistle, and he says this to Timothy in chapter 4, verse 6. He says, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. Now, that word departure in the Greek, it means my dispatching or my discharge. And it's a military term that would be used of a soldier who is being discharged from his service. And Paul is saying, the time of my discharge is at hand. Therefore, verse 7, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course and I have kept the faith. Paul says, I fought the battle. I have warred. I have been in this thing. And so this idea of warfare as it concerns us as Christians carries with it those two contexts. Number one is our daily battle against evil in our own lives. And also the territory that we take. So there's defense and there's offense. The territory that we take. Now, the context of what Moses is writing to them and how it best fits our application is in the secondary, that is the offensive. The rules of warfare as it concerns the calling that God has given to us to take territory from the enemy. That is the ministry, the things that we would do in service for the Lord. Now, the first thing that jumps right out at us, even in these verses that we just read, uh, concerning this ministry, this calling that we have, is that we, and here's good news, listen, is that we are fighting a battle that we cannot lose. He says, I am with you. You don't need to be afraid of what, uh, uh, of defeat or being pushed back. He says, I'm with you, and therefore you don't have to be afraid of that. And so we're fighting a battle that we can Always win, and that's a great thing about serving the Lord, is that you always win. However, what we discover as we read on, is that there is a price to pay. Even though we always win, if you want to serve the Lord, and you want your life to be fruitful, there is a price to pay. Notice reading on in verse 5. He says, And the officers shall speak unto the people, saying, What man is there that has built a new home? And hath not dedicated it. Let him go and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man dedicate it. And what man is he that has planted a vineyard, and hath not yet eaten of it? Let him also go and return unto his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man eat of it. And what man is there that hath betrothed a wife, and hath not taken her? Let him go and return unto his house, lest he die in the battle. And another man take her. And the officers shall speak further unto the people, and they shall say, What man is there that is fearful and faint-hearted? Let him go and return unto his house, lest his brethren's heart faint as well as his heart. And so four people that automatically, he says, just send them home because those people, their heart is not in it. They're not in it, in the battle, to fight it. And he says those people are people that are distracted by a new home, people that are distracted by a vineyard, which would be the equivalent of a business or some venture of income. The third is someone who is betrothed a wife. And the fourth is someone who is offset by their own weaknesses. They're fearful or they're faint-hearted. You see, this thing of the ministry or of serving God requires an all-in mentality. You say, well, if I want to be in the ministry, if I want to serve God, does that mean I can't own a house or have a business or take a wife or have weaknesses? That, that, that the prerequisite for being in the ministry is that no, 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 no. That's not the idea at all. In fact, I would venture to say that it's almost a requirement that you have to have those things. Because if you want to serve the Lord, but yet you don't want to have an, an attachment to what real life is, then you've got nothing to give to the people that you're seeking to serve. Because it's our trudging through this world, those of us serving the Lord, that give us something to give away as it concerns our relationship with Jesus Christ. So the idea isn't that you can't have these things, the idea is that you cannot be mastered by these things. There's always the tendency in all of us to get sucked in to the affairs and the cares of this life. Amen? It's real easy to have it happen. That, oh, that the work that needs to be done on my house, or the attention that I want to give to the business, or in setting up the retirement the right way, or in focusing on the family, all these things are good things, necessary things. Or the fears and... Uh, You know, shortcomings that surround us because of our weaknesses or our fearfulness or whatever. And, and, And what the Lord is saying, he's saying that these things cannot take precedence over what you're doing in my name. And that's such a key. It's so important. Jesus said, if any man loves house or land or wife or brothers or anything more than me, he says he is not worthy of me. That doesn't mean we're not to love those other things. It just means simply that Jesus is to be our priority, number one. Jesus said also, he said, No man putting his hand to the plow and then looking back is worthy of me. Meaning that when you put your hand to serve the Lord, be careful to finish what you started. Then he goes on to illustrate that more and more. A great picture of this is what Moses encountered when he came to the burning bush. He saw a bush that was burned with fire, but yet it was not consumed. The Hebrew writer picks up on that illustration and he speaks of God as a consuming fire. And what I've discovered is that when you begin to venture into serving the Lord, that's exactly what it is. It's a consuming fire. Is that he takes over your life and it's a glorious thing. But he's telling us here, yes, you're going to win the battle and it's a glorious thing. As Paul would say, I've fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished the course. But there is a price to pay. And so, he gives the warning here. Now, in verses 9 through the end of the chapter, he gives to us the objectives. What are the objectives of the battle? The goals. What is it that we're trying to do in this thing, this war, this battle? Verse 9. He says, And it shall be when the officers have made an end of speaking unto the people that they shall make captains of the armies to lead the people. And when you come nigh unto a city to fight against it, then proclaim peace unto it. And it shall be, if it make thee an answer of peace, and open unto thee, then it shall be that all the people that is found therein shall be tributaries unto thee, and they shall serve thee. You can tax them, and they will serve you. Now again, he's speaking to them of a literal battle in a literal sense, in a literal scene. But to you and I, it speaks to our battle as well, and it shows us what our primary objective is as Christians. What is it? First of all, it's to make peace. Our primary objective in our spiritual battle is to make peace. You say, how does that work? Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Verse 17, and he described our battle this way. He says these words. He says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. And all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself. By Jesus Christ, and he has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. Reconciliation means to make peace with God. That's the primary objective of the ministry, is to make peace between man and God. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. And he has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. So our goal in ministering, in serving, in fulfilling the great commission is making peace between men and God. Giving forth the option for peace. That hey, you can have peace with God. And God has paved the way for it. And all you have to do is open the doors to him and he will come in and there will be peace between you and god and that is what the ministry is it's to make peace but as you might have discovered and as i have discovered oftentimes when we make the offer of peace to people in bringing the gospel of christ to them they don't want peace but rather they want to fight And so what do you do if they don't want to make peace, but rather they just want to fight? Well, Moses goes on back in Deuteronomy. And he says in verse 12, he says, And if it will make no peace with thee, but will make war against thee, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord thy God hath delivered it into thine hands, thou shalt smite every male thereof with the edge of the sword. But the women, and the little ones, and the cattle, and all that is in the city, even all the spoil thereof, thou shalt take unto thyself, and you shall eat the spoil of thine enemies, which the Lord thy God hath given thee. And thus shall you do unto all the cities which are very far off from thee, which are not of the cities of these nations. Listen carefully. If they won't make peace, then the second thing you do, the sword. Let's go on. No, just kidding. (laughs) You say, wait a minute, wait a minute this is sounding more and more like an islamic bible study every phrase what the, if not peace then the sword what's this well listen in the new testament context it's true yes we use the sword do you know what the sword is ephesians chapter 6 verse 17 it's the only offensive weapon in the believer's armory he says and taking the shield of faith the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of god the word of god is our sword hebrews chapter 4 verse 12 he says that for the word of god is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword dividing asunder you know, the piercing, the, the, the joints and the marrow, the bones, whatever. You know, the, the, and as a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The Word of God is our sword. And so what do you do if you make an offer of peace to someone? You share the Lord with them and they refuse it. What do you do? You share scripture with them. You, as, as much as you can, as often as you can, you just tell them what the Bible says. You give them the sword of the Spirit. Paul would write to the Romans in his introduction, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, and he would say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. There is power in the word. And when you give the word to someone who's not saved, it sows the seed of salvation in the soil of their soul." And it might take time for that seed to germinate, to come to life. But the only thing that's going to make a difference in that person and and in seeing them brought into that relationship with God is if you give them the Word. There's power in the Word. And so, yes, if they won't make peace, then give them the sword, the sword of the Spirit. Give them the Word of God. But there's another thing that the Word of God does. And it comes to us in our last principle here in verse, verses uh, 16 and onward. If you give them the word, if you employ the sword of the spirit, it's also going to do something else, is that it's going to cause there to be separation. That's what swords do, right? I mean, the, the double-edged sword, which was, you know, the battle, the battle sword that the Romans would carry, it was used for hacking, for dividing. And that's what the sword also does. The sword of the Spirit divides, but it it doesn't divide flesh. It divides light from darkness. It causes there to be separation between that which is right and that which is not. That which is light and that which is dark. Notice in verse 16. He says, but of the cities of these people which the Lord thy God doth give thee for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breatheth. But you shall utterly destroy them, namely the Hittites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord thy God hath commanded thee, that they teach you not to do after all their abominations which they have done unto their gods, so should ye sin against the Lord your God. In other words, you are to use your sword, Israel, to eliminate the influence of evil from amongst your society so that you are not influenced by it. Now when the sword of the spirit is employed in a city, in a town, in a culture, it also divides the light from the darkness, removing the influence of evil from among the people. You say, what do you mean? The apostle Paul went to the city of Ephesus and it was the longest time that he spent in any one single location. He spent three years with the Ephesians. And it tells us that he separated the disciples into the school of Tyranius and he taught them daily, and he gave to them the full counsel of the word of God. Well, something happened when Paul did that. It, it tells us that there was a man whose name was Demetrius, and that he was kind of the the, the union boss for the idol makers there in the city of Ephesus. And he called together all the metalsmiths, all the people that made these little idols, and he said these words. He testified against himself out of his own mouth. He said, this Paul is preaching things contrary to what we do here in this city, saying that gods that are made with hands are not gods at all, and he is turning the people away, and our very craft is in danger of going out of business. You see what the Word of God does? The Word of God divides light from darkness, it exposes evil for what it is, and it wins people to the side of what's true and enduring and lasting, and it puts evil out of business. And so the Word of God is the most effective weapon, the most effective tool that you and I have as Christians in making a difference in our community and in our societies. We see it with Paul in Ephesus, and we see the picture here as Moses tells them, hey, if they won't make peace then give them the sword and you'll obtain your objective. Give them the word of God. And then he ends the section with a warning in verse 19. He says, And when you shall besiege a city a long time in making war against it to take it, you shall not destroy the trees thereof by forcing an axe against them. For you may eat of them. And you shall not cut them down, for the tree of the field is man's life, to employ them in the siege. Only the trees which thou knowest, that they be not trees for meat, thou shalt destroy and cut them down. And you shall build bulwarks against the city that maketh war with thee until it be subdued. And so he gives them this thing here uh, concerning the, uh, you know, the trees that, that, that they're to cut down. He says, don't, don't cut down the trees of the field that the thing that is to be a blessing to you that God has made to, to actually sustain you, don't cut those things down. You say, well, what does this mean? And does this have a New Testament application? It absolutely does. See, w- there is a danger, a tendency that Christians have is to overuse the sword and to hack to pieces something that could be a benefice. I know I've been guilty of this in my own life, of using the sword in an improper way to cut someone down, and someone who might have, at some point, become a brother or a sister, or someone who might have even been softened to the gospel, but because of the aggressive nature with which I was axing with my sword, I caused them to be cut down to a point where they didn't want to hear the things that I had to say about the Lord anymore. And that's something that we're to be aware of as Christians. Is that we have to be careful the way that we deal with people and the way that we wield the sword. Is that you can do a lot of good with your sword, but you can also do a lot of damage. I think of Peter, who at the trial and arrest of Jesus... When the soldiers came with Judas to arrest him, it says that he drew his sword. And in a moment of zeal and passion, he just began swinging it. And it says that he cut the ear off of Malchus, the high priest's servant. And I wonder how many people since Peter have cut ears off of potential hearers because of the careless way with which they've yielded the sword in an attempt to be zealous and passionate for Jesus. And I wonder how many ears Jesus has had to put back on like he did to Malchus because of the overzealous nature of overzealous servants. And so it's a warning to us. Hey, these people might be your brother and sister sooner than later, but be careful what you do. I think there's another thing that's worth mentioning in this is that when you are a Christian and you're in the battle, you're in the ministry, be careful not to cut down a fruitful tree. What do you mean? There are other ministries, always, that are not of the flavor that you yourself are used to. Other churches, other organizations, other denominational uh, you know, strengths and weaknesses, things that are maybe uncomfortable or unfamiliar to you. Here's the rule of thumb in how to deal with a ministry that's different than what you're used to. If it's bearing fruit... Leave it alone. If it's bearing any fruit at all, don't cut it down. Don't say, oh, I don't like the way they do things over there. Or that church is messed up. Or that mission is, it has their priorities wrong." Don't do that. If it's bearing any fruit at all. They might have seven diseased branches. Things that are wrong that you know about, that you have proof about. If it's bearing fruit, don't cut it down. Because we're the kingdom of God. It's not just Calvary Chapel. It's not just, you know, whatever. We're the kingdom of God. There are believers and there are non-believers. And if another church is doing good, that's good for us. And if we're doing good, that's good for the other churches. Because we're seeking to build God's kingdom, not our thing. Not our flavor or our bent on things. You understand? So if a tree is bearing fruit, don't cut the tree down in the battle be careful how you use your sword don't cut down a fruitful tree well he goes on in chapter 21 uh the first nine verses very interesting scenario that he paints for us here almost makes you wonder why you have to say this moses but verse one he says if one be found slain in the land which the lord thy god giveth thee to possess it lying in the field And it be not known who hath slain him. Then the elders and the judges shall come forth. And they shall measure unto the cities which are round about him that is slain. And it shall be that the city which is next unto the slain man. Or closest to the man that was killed. Even the elders of that city shall take a heifer. Which hath not been wrought with. Never been worked. It's unbroken and which hath not drawn in the yoke. And the elders of that city shall bring down the heifer unto a rough valley, a jagged valley, a barren valley, never been farmed, never been sown, which is neither eared nor sown, and shall strike off the heifer's neck, or break the heifer's neck there in the valley. And the priests, the sons of Levi, shall come near. For them the Lord thy God hath chosen to minister unto him and to bless in the name of the Lord. And by their word shall every controversy and every stroke be tried. And all the elders of that city, which are next unto the slain man, closest to where the man was found, shall wash their hands over the heifer that is beheaded in the valley. And they shall answer and say, Our hands have not shed this blood, neither have our eyes seen it. Be merciful, O Lord, unto thy people Israel, whom thou hast redeemed. And lay not innocent blood unto thy people of Israel's charge. And the blood shall be forgiven them. So shall you put away the guilt of innocent blood from among you, when you shall do that which is right in the sight of the Lord. So he gives them this instruction of what to do if it so happens that there is a body, a corpse, someone who is slain, found in the field, and it's an unsolved mystery. He says that you're to measure and determine which is the closest city to where this man is. And then you're to take an unbroken, unused heifer, bring it to a barren, jagged, rough valley... And break its neck there. And then you're to call all of the priests and the Levites and the elders of the city to come together. And then you're to cause them to see that scene. To see that scene. A slain man. And then in an opposite valley. A a barren valley. A jagged place. A heifer with a broken neck. And they're to see it and to consider that innocent blood has been shed. And to realize and understand that the guilt of that blood is upon the whole city. That the whole city is responsible for the blood of that man because it is an unsolved mystery. And that they're not allowed to just ignore it or to pretend that it didn't happen. Or just think of it as, well, it's not my fault. I didn't know him, and I didn't do it, so I don't have to. No, no, everybody has to come and see this thing and realize that something has happened there. And then they need to wash their hands over the beheaded heifer, the broken-necked calf or ox that's there. And by doing that, what they are doing is that they are owning the guilt of it, saying, yes, our city is responsible, and we don't want to bring the curse of God upon us. And at the same time, they're saying, however, I am not akin to this crime. I did not have anything to do with it. And and I washed my hands of this guilt. And then they were to ask for mercy. They had to ask for mercy, even though they didn't necessarily commit the crime. And it says that then they would obtain forgiveness. Now, it's an interesting scenario and kind of a weird ritual. But it paints a real interesting picture, doesn't it? Because here you have an innocent man who's slain, an innocent man whose blood is shed. By the way, if you look back there in verse 9, it says, if one, I'm sorry, verse 1, it says, if one be found slain, do you know what the Hebrew word for slain is there? It's the Hebrew word kalkal C-H-A-L-O-L, kalal or whatever. There's probably a lot more saliva in the pronunciation of that word, you know? How to say it isn't important, but do you know what that word means? you know how that word is used? It's used pierced. If a man is found, pierced. If an innocent man is pierced outside of the city, can you imagine for a minute if you were a bird, an eagle, and you were just flying over the scene, what you would see? You would see an innocent man pierced outside the city. And then in an opposite valley, a barren valley, a jagged, rough place, you would see an unbroken heifer with a broken neck. And you'd see the elders of the city, everyone being called to account, taking ownership of the guilt of it. And then to be washed, to ask for mercy, and to be forgiven as they did that. Interesting picture, isn't it? They would never understand it. But you and I, we look at them, we say, hey, that sounds familiar. It sounds familiar to another man who was innocent and pierced and slain outside the city. And another unbroken ox, if you would, a betrayer whose neck was broken in a jagged, rough valley, al the field of blood, you know, that was there. And that the people weren't allowed to just ignore the fact that this took place, but that everyone is called to account to take ownership of the fact that this has happened, lest the guilt of it come upon their head because they are guilty by association, and thus they must come consider recognize what was done and then be washed ask for mercy and then be forgiven great picture isn't it of the gospel of what jesus christ the son of god would do the innocent one who was slain for us well you can go through that whole passage is pregnant with that picture and you can dig it out even yet more but he goes on in verse 10 and he says when you go forth to war against thine enemies and the Lord thy God hath delivered them into thine hands and you have taken them captive and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and hast a desire unto her that thou wouldest have her to thy wife. Then you shall bring her home to thine house and she shall shave her head and pare her nails. Then look again. You know. And she shall put the raiment of her captivity from off of her And shall remain in thine house, and bewail her father and her mother a full month. And after that you shall go in unto her, and be her husband, and she shall be thy wife. And it shall be, if thou have no delight in her, then thou shalt let her go, whither she will. But you shall not sell her at all for money. You shall not make merchandise of her, because you have humbled her. And so he gives this practical instruction. Uh, probably he didn't want to have to give this instruction, but he knew he would, and so he does. He tells them that this is the, the rule, what you're to do in that case. You're not to make a quick decision. You're not to treat this life as though it, it just belongs to you, but you're to, with dignity, weigh out your options. You're to wait 30 days. Uh, you're to go through these things and make a, make a fair decision. And, and what's the point of all this? The point is this, that God cares about the captive is that these aren't just people. These aren't just faces or or, or numbers to God, blank existences. But rather, God cares even about the captive. And it's important to him that even someone who is a captive, that is brought in, that that person have a proper second chance or a proper new beginning. The shaving of the head, the paring of the nails, the putting off of the old clothes, and the putting on of the new. And then they're not to be made merchandise of. They're not to be just used and abused and that type of thing, but that God cares about those people, those captives in the battle. And so we see that principle played out here. And then he goes on in verse 15, if a man have two wives, one beloved and another hated, and they have born born him children. Now, by the way, people say, well, why not polygamy? That's why right there. Because that's always the case. Whenever you see it in the Bible or hear about it, and the obscure fringes of life. If a man have two wives, he will love the one and hate the other. Jesus said that no man can serve two masters because you will love the one and you will hate the other. And it's impossible to have affection in this way for two. And so he says that when this happens, that one is beloved and the other is hated, and they have borne him children, both the beloved and the hated. And if the firstborn son be hers that was hated in in other words it's the wife that he doesn't like so much she bears the first child then it shall be when he maketh his sons to inherit that which he has that he may not make the son of the beloved firstborn before the son of the hated which is indeed the firstborn But he shall acknowledge the son of the hated as the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he has. For he is the beginning of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. Now, that was the law of the Leverite or part of it is that the firstborn would be the one that would carry on the family name. He would inherit a double portion uh, uh, of what everyone else would get just because he was the firstborn. He would have other responsibilities. He would be in charge of taking care of the parents. And and there was a whole code, a whole system that went along with it. But God knew that the tendency, the temptation would come into the heart of men that if they were in this situation, that the man would want to make the son of the beloved the firstborn and not the son of the hated. God says it's not to be that way. The firstborn is the firstborn, is the firstborn, and they're to be treated that way. And so Moses writes it. Now in verse 18, through the end of the chapter, the case of the rebellious son, sounds like Perry Mason. He says, if a man have a stubborn and rebellious son, which will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and that when they have chastened him, will not hearken unto them. Then shall his father and his mother lay hold on him and bring him out unto the elders of his city and unto the gate of his place. If you have a child that is chastened, taught, accountable held accountable but yet is still rebellious then what you're to do is you're to bring them to the gate of the city and to the government now the gate of the city was where the government of the city took place it was the equivalent of the court system that we employ in the united states of america today in other words what he's saying is that if you have a son who is continually rebellious even though you've taken every step as a parent to eliminate it you're not to shield them from the legislative authorities you're not to continue to enable them to continue on in a lifestyle that's ultimately going to bring them to destruction but you're to allow the consequences of their actions to come upon them that that's responsible parenting when what you're doing, the discipline that you're providing, is not working. Is that you're to let the consequences of their actions come upon them. Now if you don't do that, then all you're doing is you're you know, elongating the problem, you're delaying what's going to happen, and you're intensifying the problem when it comes to a head. And so you're to let these things play out. Let the consequences come upon them. You say, well, what are the consequences? Let's read it. Verse 20. He says, and they shall say unto the elders of his city, this our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. And all the men of his city shall stone him with stones that he die so shalt thou put away evil from among you and all israel shall hear and fear now i know what you're thinking you're thinking you read that with way too much of a spark in your eye (laughs) you know too much life in your voice did you hear what you just read before your jaw hits the floor you know and you say really is this is this the heart of a father Is this God's heart that the rebellious son is to be stoned and that he's to die? No, no, listen. This is not a lesson in fathering. It's a lesson in fear. We live in an increasingly fearless society. We live in a society where there are almost no consequences for actions whatsoever, no matter what you do. Hey, if you want to disobey your parents and you don't want to do what your parents are telling you to do and you don't like the course of discipline that your parents respond with to that well all you have to do is call cps and cps will intervene And they'll stop your parents from doing the thing that they're doing. And they'll provide for you a different environment apart from your parents. And they have provided a way wherein children don't have to be accountable to their parents. And they've put fear, not in the child, but in the parent of what's going to happen if they discipline their children, what's going to happen. And so there's no consequences for a disobedient child in our day. You don't want to work. You don't want to get a job. You don't want to work with your hands. You don't want to sweat. You don't want to punch the clock. You don't want to do that. Well, hey, in our society, you don't have to. If you choose not to work, someone else will shoulder that burden, and I guarantee you will not go hungry even for a day. You say, Well, I don't want to pay my bills. I don't want to, you know, make good on the debts that I owe and and, and, and provide for these. Well, listen, you don't have to. Don't pay them. There's no consequences for not paying your bills in the society because someone is going to come along and bail you out. Someone's going to come along and pay that bill for you or provide that service for you in a way that it's provided free of charge for you, that it doesn't cost you anything at all. No consequences for that. So you don't want to pay your bills? You don't have to. You want to commit a crime. Well, listen, the jails are full. There's no room for most things for 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 the crimes that most people would commit for you to go to jail and so you're probably not going to go to jail furthermore the judicial system is so corrupt that if you just get a good attorney or if you can find a technicality or a place where things weren't handled perfectly according to protocol hey the percentage of cases that are actually you know caught tried and convicted is so minuscule that really, the, 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 the statistics are, you want to commit a crime, go ahead. You're never going to be held accountable for it. There's no consequences for the action. It, it used to be that if you wanted to live a sexually promiscuous lifestyle, that there were certain consequences that would keep you from doing that. An unwanted pregnancy years ago, once that became less of an issue, then the, the, the rise, the rapid rise of sexually transmitted diseases well, what do we find? Is that every day there's a new vaccine that you can get that will prevent sexually transmitted diseases. They've even made great headway in treating and, 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 and actually curing HIV in a few cases, you know, as they make the advances. And no, no consequences. I can go out and live that lifestyle and, and do it, and it's no problem at all. And that even in churches today in the United States of America, the doctrine that there is no hell is gaining great headway. No consequences. Even the church is eliminating the consequences for bad, rebellious behavior. So you can basically, in the United States of America, you can do whatever or not do whatever you want, and there are virtually no consequences for it whatsoever. Now, what we see happening in our society and what's going on in our world today is the result of living in a society where there is no fear of any consequences whatsoever. It brings absolute instability and recklessness to any people when there's no fear and there's no consequences. Now, if you were a stubborn and a rebellious child and your dad looked at you and said, that's it, son. We're going to the gates of the city and he opened up his Old Testament, his Torah to Deuteronomy and he said, this is what we're going to do and they're going to stone you to death. What would that do? It would provoke fear in the heart of the rebellious child, and that would produce the beginning of change. I remember my father told me growing up, he, said, he, he used to tell me this, when, when we would see someone that was smoking a cigarette, you know, or something, he would say to me, he would say, son, I smoked cigarettes for 10 years. He said, I smoked cigarettes for 10 years. He said, I was addicted to cigarettes. And he said, one morning, he said, I woke up coughing and I couldn't stop coughing. And I coughed until I coughed up blood. And he said, that was the last time I ever smoked a cigarette. I never smoked another cigarette after that day, even to this very day. Why? There was fear because of consequences to the actions that were happening. It also produced fruit because I never smoked a cigarette hearing that story. You know, I smoked some other things I shouldn't have, you know, but, but never cigarettes, you know, because of that story. And, and, and because, you know, I knew the power of that addiction. You know, I've seen that in, 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 and I saw it all growing up as, as we have, you know, we do. But you see what fear does? Fear is a good thing. Fear is not unhealthy. Fear is healthy. Fear is holy. And so God here is saying, this is how you're going to get through to them, is when there's some fear. When there are some real consequences that are actually going to cause something, you're going to get through to that rebellious person. You say, well, wait a minute. You know, what, what gives you the authority to say that this is not a lesson on fathering? Because he's telling you how to raise a rebellious son this is clear how can you say that that's not god's heart when when god says that you're to stone him isn't this the law are you excusing away what god said pastor nick that, that, that that they're not supposed to actually do this i mean this is the law you can't do that can you well i don't think it's an accident what it says in verses 22 and 23 notice he says, And if a man have committed a sin worthy of death, and he be to be put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but you shall in any wise bury him that day. For he that is hanged is accursed of God, that thy land be not defiled, which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance. Now, the Apostle Paul himself tells us what this verse means. We have the interpretation of this verse as clear as it can come in the New Testament book of Galatians, chapter 3, verse 13. Paul the Apostle tells us this. He says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on us." A tree that he isn't speaking here concerning the generic hanging of someone upon a tree but he's speaking of what God would accomplish in Christ no I'm not excusing away what God said what God told Moses to do I'm not making an excuse for the law you see there's no record anywhere in Hebrew history or Jewish history of anyone ever stoning a child to death because of their rebellion this never happened as far as we know that it actually goes down in history and in fact we have a new testament story that tells us perfectly that pictures for us what the heart of a father that has a rebellious son is jesus told the story and listen it wasn't a parable Whenever it's parable, the Bible says Jesus spoke a parable. Here, he says there was a certain man. And he said his son came to him and he said, divide unto me the inheritance. I'm tired of your rules. I'm tired of the restrictions, the boundaries that you've placed. I'm going out and living my own life. And so the father divided the portion of his goods to his son and his son went and it says that he wasted it all with riotous living. He went out and just spent all the money that he had living a licentious lifestyle. And when he ran out of money, he had to go find work at a pig farm. And after working there for some time, it says that he came to his senses. And he realized that, hey, even the servants in my father's house are eating better than I'm eating. I wish I could eat the slop that I'm giving to these pigs. They're eating better than me. And so he said, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to humble myself and I'm going to go back to my father's house. Maybe he'll receive me. Maybe he'll bring me to the elders of the city and they'll stone me with stones. Either way, it's better than what I've got here. And so he packs up, he goes back. He doesn't even have shoes, we find out, as he comes because the father gives him his own. And he comes to the place and he says that his father saw him coming a great way off. We get the idea that he was looking for him. That he was hoping. That every day there was a longing in the heart of this father that his son would come home. And when he saw him there afar off, it says that the father was overjoyed when he saw his son. And it says that he girded up his robe and that he ran to meet him. It's the only time in the Bible that the father is pictured running. And he's running to the returning repentant sinner and when he came to him with tears in his eyes with joy in his heart he embraces his son it says that he put his robe on him the robe that was being worn by the father he gave it to his son and then he embraced him and not only did he bring him back into his home but he killed the fatted calf and he made a celebration because the lost son had returned home and that gives to us the heart of the father. That's the father's heart towards the one who's rebellious, towards the one who's stubborn. And so it isn't law that we bring them and we stone them or hang them upon a tree, but rather, here's what God did. Because yes, he can't violate the law. It's true that this is what God said, and that means that's what God meant. But here's the real issue. Who's the real rebellious son? me it's you we all the prophet says like sheep have gone astray we've all turned aside the bible says that there is none righteous no not one that the poison of vipers is under our tongues that our feet are swift to shed blood That we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And every one of us is the rebellious son. And you know what? Under law, every one of us deserves to die. But God didn't want that. So here's what God did. He sent his only son, his obedient son. Two times in the New Testament, the father speaks and says, this is my son. (laughs) He sent his obedient son. And his obedient son, hung upon a tree, was nailed to a cross in place of you and me. He absorbed the death that you and I deserved through our rebellion. And you say, why? Why would the Father send perfection to take the place of us? of the rebellion that's in us, why would he do that? Well, the best answer I can give you is in the next verse in Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3 verse 14. Notice what Paul says there. It says that Christ, it says in 13, that he became the curse for us. Why? Verse 14, that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith is that we might obtain the blessing of Abraham by the substitution of Christ for us. You say, well, what's the blessing of Abraham? First of all, it's righteousness. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. So we we inherit Christ's righteousness. Second of all, friendship. Abraham, two times in the Bible, is called the friend of God. Jesus says to you and I, I no longer call you servants, but friends. We obtain friendship, the friendship of God. And number three, we are embraced by God. We're given his promises. Even as Abraham was the one who obtained promise, so also we take that place. The blessing of Abraham comes upon us. Why? Because of the son who traded places with us, you and I, who were the rebellious children. Praise the Lord. Next week, we'll pick up in chapter 22 as we continue on in the book of Deuteronomy. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you tonight for the word of God. We thank you that it's living, that it's powerful, that it's sharper than a two-edged sword. We thank you that as we sit here tonight and just thumb through these pages and work through these precepts, Lord, there's something in our hearts that comes to life. We feel your spirit moving upon us and breathing through this place. We sense your will being written upon our lives. and We understand the transformation that's taking place in us. as We just let the word of God work through us and go through us. And so tonight, Lord, we give our lives to you afresh. And I pray tonight, Lord, for any here that maybe feel called to the ministry. That you've been putting that in their heart. That that they want to serve you. That they, they see the battlefield. That they understand the calling. And they... Grasp what eternity is, at least to some degree, and they want to serve you, Lord. That tonight, Lord, you would put in them that fire, that all consuming fire that cannot be quenched. That you would build them up in their most holy faith, Lord. And that you would give to them that heart of love for you and love for people that they might serve you. We pray for tonight, Lord, your people. We pray for each one here, for all of us, Lord, that we would have wisdom in sharing with others that you would help us and teach us how to use the Word of God, that as we take up the sword of the Spirit, and as we share with people, that we would give to them the love of God, that we would have skill with the Gospel, that we would have sensitivity and compassion and love, that we would have understanding, that we wouldn't, like Peter, cut off ears, Lord, but that you would help us. We pray that you would give us wisdom. We pray tonight, Lord, that you would give us an appreciation for the cross that as we see pictured over and over again throughout these pages, the cross of Jesus Christ, the man who was pierced, the one who was hung upon a tree, who is accursed of God for us, how we pray tonight, Lord, that you would give us appreciation and that you would receive our thanksgiving, Lord, as we just say thank you. Thank you for what you've done for us, Lord. And Father, I pray tonight that you would pour a blessing out upon your people, that you would bless them, Lord, That your presence would be so rich and so real in their life. That as they open up their Bibles and read morning by morning and night by night, Lord, that you would meet with them. That, Father, as they walk through their days, they would sense your presence leading, guiding, building them up, feeding them, Lord. That you would increase their wisdom and their knowledge of you. You would increase their love, Lord that you'd be with them in their circumstances and their families and the things that they're doing and that you would just pour out such a blessing upon your people. And I pray that tonight, Lord, they would leave so full, so full of your love, so full of your peace, so aware of your presence, and that you would be our Lord. We thank you so much for what you're doing in our lives. We pray that you would continue. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.